Yes. Okay. So yesterday we we learned about the muscle, the analogy of the flame. Does anyone remember what were the characteristics of a flame that are going to serve us in understanding the godly soul? The godly soul is orangish, and f- just like a flame is, right? No. Burning light. What? Flickering. Okay. What does the flickering signify about the f- about the flame, not about the soul? What about the? That it feel like it's not settled when. Right. When it's a, right, it can't be settled when it is, when it is removed from its source, okay. But when it's at its source, it's gone. All right, but the other fact is that when it's at its source, right, it it disappears, right? It shines no light. So, it's it, and remember, I, I introduced the idea of being spiritual versus physical, right? And something is more spiritual, the stronger its bond with the sources. And something is physical, the more comfortable it is being its own separate thing. So the flame is the most spiritual of the physical stuff because the flame, when it is located outside the source, being held by the wick, it's clearly very uncomfortable that it's flickering. And returning to its source involves the flame being extinguished, right? the flame disappearing, it no longer shining any light. Right? So the flame um, has this very strong intolerance of being separated or disconnected or even being distinct from the source. And we don't find that kind of thing in other things. And um, those characteristics we're going to carry over to the soul. Okay. So let's just read that inside. In like manner is the neshama of man, including the quality of ruach and nefesh. Now, the, the idea here is that there's actually different levels of the soul. We spoke about this earlier in chapter 18, remember? We spoke about there's the nefesh, ruach, shama. So it doesn't really matter what level of soul you have naturally desires and yearn to separate itself and depart from the body in order to unite with its origin and source in God, the fountainhead of life, blessed is he. And though thereby it would become null and void, completely losing its entity therein with nothing remaining of its former essence and being. Okay, now, so what would happen to the soul if it would return to God? What does it say? What happens to the flame if it returns to its source? And so what happens to the soul? The soul loses its identity, okay? Um, And that unsettledness of the flame is reflected in a kind of ongoing unsettledness of the soul, right? An urgency, a drive to return to the source. Okay, now. If the soul were to reunite with God, would the soul entirely disappear? No. Why not? Because the effects that it had were so No, no, I, I want to talk about the soul. Physically? Itself. The soul's not. No, I'm not talking about. <coughs> you're not saying would, this, would the soul cease to exist retroactively? Like, if the soul were to reunite with its source, would the soul in that, would it, would it cease to exist entirely? Okay, why not? Okay. What about the flame? When the flame reunites with its source, does it cease to exist entirely? No. It becomes one with the other. What? It 
becomes one with the other. So here we have to do is we have to differentiate between two aspects of the flame. Okay. Um, what is the flame? And this is a metaphysical question. Okay, what is the flame? That's where it is. What is it? And I'm asking again, not a physics question, a metaphysical question. What is the flame? Fire. Okay. And so if it is fire, and it returns to the element of fire, has it ceased to be fire? No. Don't think too much about what, what fire is. But if something is fire and it becomes subsumed in the archetypical fire, the primordial fire, the, essen the essence of what fire is, does it lose, does it, does it cease to be fire that way? Does that, that wouldn't make any sense, right? right? To be obliterated, to be extinguished, you would have to be extinguished by, by being um, overwhelmed by something that you are not, right? Something that's negating of you. So if the flame is fire and it returns to the source of fire, it doesn't cease to be fire that way. So then what is being negated? It's entity separate. Right. The, right. The f fire, as we are familiar with it, has a very specific form, right? A form of a heat and flame and light. And the elemental fire does not have that form at all, right? And so the flame has fire in a way that makes it clear, clear that it's distinct from the elemental source of fire. So, to, to, to flesh that out a little bit clearer, it's important to understand what's the difference between the essence of something or the substance of something versus its existence or its form. Okay. Is the soul, and I'm going to give you two choices, is the soul pro-God or anti-God? Okay, so therefore, the, the moving is very overly simplistic. Therefore, the closer the soul gets to God, the more um, the soul is being legitimized. Right? This is this is the proper place for the soul. Right? The further the soul gets away from God, the opposite. That makes sense. Okay. To help make this a little bit clearer, let's talk about a. Thing, which is, let's talk about your standard creation. God created a thing. Is that thing that God created pro-God or anti-God? I'm only giving you two options. It was created by God. Is it pro-God or anti-God? Pro-God. It is anti-God. So now I have to think about why would I say something like that? Okay. Are teenagers pro their children, pro their parents or anti their parents? giving you only get two options. Anti. Why? Now, again, I'm oversimplifying. It's not really true. They're not just anti their parents. But why? What? Why are... Why they are... want to be their own existence. Right. right. The process of being a teenager is to become a person in your own right. 
you cannot become a person in your own right if you do not properly differentiate yourself from your parents, right? This obviously is complicated because we also like, feel strong attachments and bonds, so it's like a mess, but whatever. Right? So, it is not correct that more parental presence and involvement is better for the child. Right? In fact, the art of raising children very much is about knowing how much to pull back and how quickly. <laughs> right? Do it too fast and they're not ready for it. Do it too slowly, you smother them, right? Make sense? Okay. If something is being created by God, that thing has an, an, an identity and a, an, 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 a being to it that is distinct from God. Well, what does that mean? That means God has to kind of give it its space to be whatever it is, a tree, a fish, whatever it is. Make sense? And if that thing wants to thrive in being whatever it is, it needs that space for it to be. And God can provide that space and support that space, but God can't occupy that space because it would kind of drown out that other thing. Make sense? So like a built-in tension between God and his creations, right? That the creation needs kind of some breathing space, some living space. So what would happen if any creation were to return to God? It, yeah, it would, it, it, it would cease to exist in, like, it, on the level of its essence, the level of its substance, right? And go back, thinking, right? Think about like, what happens to you as an adult human being if your parents, God forbid, never, like, they continue to treat you like a toddler into your 20s and 30s. You just, you couldn't be, right? Make sense? So when you think about one thing being subsumed or immersed or unified with something else, you have to ask a very important question. Are these things of like kind or are these things distinct from each other? If I take a a flame, and I don't mean this is a perfect analogy, but it'll just, and I throw that flame into a larger fire, right? Maybe that flame loses any sort of distinctness that it has, right? But it's being fire has not been threatened or jeopardized or negated by being subsumed in a larger fire, right? Um, if I take a drop of water and throw it into the ocean, same idea, right? But what if I took a flame and put it in the ocean? It would extinguish it, right? Throw a drop of water into a fire, it evaporates. Right? So you see, in other words, there's, 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 there's the substance, the essence of what you are, and then there is the form, the manner, the way in which you exist. Those are really two different things. So if the flame returns the elemental source of fire, right, it's not becoming less fire that way, but it's becoming less of fire as we know what fire is, right? It's no longer flickering, it's no longer bright, right? In fact, it becomes totally unrecognizable. What about the godly soul? Does the godly soul become less godly if it becomes subsumed and united within God? That makes no sense, right? But what is lost? The godliness of the soul is not annihilated, but what is, what is, I don't know, I'll use the word, what is being sacrificed? What is being, what, what, what is being let go of? So the godliness of the soul is going to remain, but what is not going to remain? It's individuality. Anything that distinguishes it from God. 
What are some of the things that distinguish the godly soul from God? Do you think God feels a strong urge and desire to reunite with God? Do you think God feels a great degree of bliss and satisfaction when God is close to God? Do you think God um, has this need to make sense of God in order to be able to maintain a connection to God as God travels through the created universe? Does that make, do anything make any sense? No. So what about the godly soul's desire to be close to God? The godly soul's pleasure and joy in being in God's presence? What about the, the godly soul's ability and need to make sense of God? What happens to all of those faculties of the godly soul if it were to reunite with God? Yes. What would exist? God. Just the sense of God, right? That's it the sense of God would be so overwhelming and so absolute. There wouldn't be any space left for any kind of aspect of the soul, right? So we talk about the soul having different levels and there's the desire of the soul and the love and the fear and all that. All that would disappear. And all that would be left is just the godliness of the soul becoming subsumed, becoming submerged in the godliness of God himself. So... Inasmuch as the core essence of the godly soul is that it's godly, that remains. But in the sense of a being having a relationship with God and, and understanding God and feeling close to God and deriving pleasure and meaning from that and pains, like all that would disappear if the soul really reunited with God. Um, there's an analogy the altar ever uses in other places, which is what, would be the ultimate, what is the ultimate unity between father and son? Anyone know the ultimate unity between father and son? Before the son's conceived. Before the son is born, there's not much unity between the father and son. Before the son is conceived. Now, if the son were to reunify with the father in that way, what would happen to the son? Right? The only thing about the son remain is it, whatever part of the son is synonymous with the father. Nothing about the son which is distinct from the father. Right? That's basically the idea. What? What if someone doesn't have a son? Like, what do you mean? Like, you said the father and the son, but like, what's, let's say someone doesn't have a son. Like, how does... How does what? I'm not sure what you're asking. That's what I'm not answering. No, no, I'm, I'm sure you have a very good question. I just don't know what you're asking, so... Like, you said a father and a son, right? Right. Like, but let's say someone has a child that... And they have a bunch of children, but none of them are boys. Ah. So... The gender of the parent is actually significant in the analogy. I am not sure that the gender of the child is significant in this particular analogy. Okay. Um, and this has to do with, with an idea that, the, that Hasidus understands that the contribution um, conceptually of the father is to provide the, is the essence of what it is to be a human being, whereas the contribution of the mother is to actualize and make you a real human being. Um, and so like once... That's the difference between conception versus birth, is that in conce once conception, you are being actualized, you're just not fully actualized. And that's a process, right? But prior to conception, there's just, you know, there, 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 there's just the fact that the humanity can be passed on from one person to another through procreation, but nothing actually exists. And so 
the, the gender of, of the parent is significant. I don't know that the gender of the child. It, sometimes the gender of the child is a significant part of the analogy, but here I don't think it is. Okay. So, now, I mean, I, I think my father is amazing, but I don't want to, like, undo my own conception, you understand? <laughs> like, no, right. That's just generally not how people are, right? It, you know, it's that, that desire to reunify with your source gets limited by also desire to, like, you know, maintain your own existence, your own entity, your own distinction, right? Um, I have a question, because the other day we, were, we used the word extinguished, like when referring to the fire, but it sounds like if a fire is just going back into a bigger fire, it's not actually being extinguished. Right, which is why that analogy is not the analogy he uses. Oh, okay. I was just using that for that, because that makes it clear that the fire is not becoming less fire. Right. But, with the, but, but, but that analogy isn't good because all you have is a bigger fire and a smaller fire. Well, the analogy he wants to use is that, which the analogy uses, is the flame and the, and the, and the, um, and the fundamental element of fire. And the fundamental element of fire exists in a different way than the flame. Okay. But they're of one essence. So when the flame goes back, it, it can't say it's losing its essence, because it's fire, but it's losing everything that gave it its existence as what it was. Um, it no longer shines. And again, it, it, no longer, it, it no longer emits light. So some aspect of it is being extinguished entirely, okay. right? It's existence, right? Or it's being an entity, but it's in some sense it's it's not being it's not not it, it's not losing anything at all, which is that its essence is being validated. And this is this is the, what's happening. In the fire. This is what's happening. In the soul is that the essence is getting the ultimate validation at the cost of like losing your existence entirely. And again, that is not a normal thing, right? That's not. As much as we desire to validate our deep essential roots in our parents or in our whatever we come from, right, th there is also a, a countervailing urge to maintain ourselves, right, to perpetuate ourselves. Hence, being a teenager is complicated, right? You don't want to just, like, abandon your parents, you just don't, but you also don't want to, like, be, you know, choked by them. Good? Okay. So, let's make this a little bit more concrete. Does the soul gain a greater understanding of God when the soul reunites with God? Yes. No. No, it does not. Because what does the soul lose in reuniting with God? Existence. Part of which is its capacity and comprehension. A capacity to comprehend God, right? That's a way to relate to God. Right? That's something that distinguishes it from God, actually. Different souls even are capable of providing God in different ways. So, if, this is, if the soul were to feel this desire, would it want to die and go to heaven? What? Would the, does the soul want to die and go to heaven? This should be an easy question to answer. Yes. No. What? <laughs> no. Why not? What? The soul wants to keep being itself? No. 
the soul wants to, the soul's like the flame we said, right? It wants to keep wants comprehending to God. Source. What? It wants to return to the source. Right. And what is, a soul in heaven is where? At its source. No. No? No. Yeah. A soul in heaven. What does a soul do in heaven? Yes. Anyone know what souls do in heaven? They die. Nothing. No, they do something. They're brothers. They perceive God and, and delight in their appreciation of God. Delight in his presence. Is it that this proves that a soul in heaven is not actually in its source. In other words, what's the upshot of going to heaven? The upshot of going to heaven is that you get to perceive God and experience God more fully than you do when you're embodied. But that's not what the text said, right? The text said to depart from the body in order to unite with its origin and source in God. Not to go back to heaven, but to go to and in heaven, you are still outside of God. You just get a, you know, it's like, a, it's a, you know, if there's a, if, if there's a performance, right? Do, do you have like a good, good seats, bad seats? You don't even have a ticket, right? But regardless, you're still, you're still, you're still in relation to the thing. You're not, you, you, there's the, the performance and there's you. It's not the same thing. The flame, right? Go back to the analogy of the flame. The flame is not trying to have a closer relationship with the element of fire, right? What is the flame doing? It is, it is existentially troubled by its existence outside of its source. And so it keeps flickering to get away from that, right? And when it goes back to its source, there's nothing that... It, it doesn't exist in the same way at all. Anything about the flame that made it distinct from the elemental source of fire disappears. So for the soul... This is not about having a closer relationship with God. This is about that there is something deeply disturbing to the soul when it discovers itself outside of God. Whether it's in the physical body or in heaven for that matter really wouldn't change anything. Does that make sense? In other words, you're, you don't get, make the, you don't, the soul doesn't get what it wants if you can lose... Um, the body, and, and in fact, in Kabbalah, the, the idea of a body is spoken about um, in a kind of a broader sense. There's obviously our physical body, but anything which makes the soul concrete and tangible is, is considered a body. So when the soul is in heaven, it needs a body. And it's a more spiritual body, a body that doesn't obstruct it from perceiving God the way our physical body does, but it still has a body. The soul seeks to lose itself entirely in God. But where does it achieve that? That's a good question. The text didn't tell us. But what's very clear, I'm going to rephrase. The text didn't tell us yet. Um, but what is very clear is that if we know anything in, in, if, uh, about heaven from a Jewish perspective, right? As our sages say that a soul in heaven sits and delights in the presence of the Shekhinah, the divine presence. That's not this. Um, one of the, the, the topics in Hasidus talks about a, a immature love of God. I don't know, immature. A, 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 a shallower love of God and a deeper love of God. Um, it's called Avazuta Navarabba. Avazuta, the, the, the smaller, shallower love of God, is where you love God and you seek to be close to Him. And Avarabba, or the great love, is where you love God and you seek 
to unite with him. Now, if you're gonna, if you want to unite with God, what do you have to lose? You lose yourself completely. So what do you gain from that? This, I'm gonna keep emphasizing, this is gonna, what do you gain from uniting with God? And is there anything that, of, is there any distinct element of you left to appreciate that? No. So what do you gain? Nothing. So why would you want that? Because your love of God is limitless. Your love of God is absolute. But if your love of God is, seeks the fulfillment of being close to him, that's not the same thing. It's important to understand that this, is, this, this love is really different. And here's the thing. Let's say that you are spiritually minded and you get in touch with your soul. Does that actually mean you get in touch with this part of your soul? This is... Okay. Uh, the Alter Ebo used to say on a regular basis and kind of like a... Uh, was, you'd fall into this kind of like spiritual trance-like state and he would just say um, in Yiddish, Ich will garnished, I want nothing. I don't want your Gan Eden. I don't want your world to come. I want nothing other than you yourself. Okay, now, here's the thing. It sounds very nice until you think about, well, what is, what is Gan Eden? What is heaven? What is the world to come? Those are intense experiences of closeness with God. So he's saying, I don't want anything. I don't want to feel close to you. I just want you. And you start to think, well, what does that even mean? <laughs> I don't want to be close to you. I want you. Well, What's the... Oh, all right. In other words, in other words, there's a way in which, and there's a, even the intensity of this love and desire, go think back to the flame. What happens if the flame gets its way? It isn't. What happens if the desire gets away? Even the desire goes away because the desire is itself indicative of the separation. So you don't get a fulfillment of the desire. You get an extinguishing of the desire. So, what? So sad. Well, th- this is what, so this is what the Alter Rebbe, this is what they, this is, this is, this is what the Alter Rebbe speaks about and, and this actually relates to, to actually this week's Parsha. Um, you can have, a, 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 it requires a certain depth of bondedness and connection to God that this love doesn't seem like sad and tragic. It seems like the ideal. And most of us, because we're very much wrapped up in preserving some degree of our sense of ourselves as an entity, right? We are not willing to lose that entirely. And so our spiritual, our, and their levels of the soldier are like this, that they're really, they're, they're really, you know, I, I, I want to be close to God, but, but there is a, you, know, you don't want to be too close because you'll lose yourself completely. Right. And that's like a major, like even someone who's like entirely God-focused can have a major spiritual struggle. Right. But this is, a, when we say every Jew has um, an innate love of God, we're trying to discover what does that innate love of God look like? Is that innate love that every Jew wants to like be really close to God? No, we're saying that there's a part of this Jew which is like the flame. Now, why would you want that? 
It makes no sense. So the Altar continues and says, nevertheless, this is its will and desire by its nature. Okay. Um, now, what I want to do is I want to make sure we're all, everything we've said now, everyone's comfortable with in terms of understanding it. Emotion comfortable is a whole other topic. Okay. <laughs> okay. By the way, this is not something you have to achieve. It's already there somewhere inside of you. <laughs> you just don't feel it. Um, and I want to talk about this. I, I want to talk about nature, um, and I want to talk about language. As a, as a, before we move forward, um, if we finish this little introduction, then we'll move forward. If not, then we'll continue again on mo- Monday in the text. Um, I first want to talk about language. There are different ways we use words in Hasidus, um, and this is this is not unique to Hasidus, but it shows up in Hasidus. There's what's called um, shame hatayar, which means um, a descriptive um, name, and shame hamusha, which means a borrowed name. There's actually something else called shame ha'etzem, the, 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 the name of the entity itself, um, the shame ha'pu'ula, the name of the, act, the, the name of the activity. There's different types of use of language. But I'm just going to focus on um, the, the terms shame ha'tayar and shame ha'musho. Um, he here translated calls it an applied term. I don't know if you really know what that means from the English. So there you would be like this. Okay. Let's say um, I have a person, and I say that this person is a wise person. What do I mean when I say that they're a wise person? And the answer is, well, I could mean many different things. Right? The word can be used, in this, this term, this, this, this name, this, this way of talking about them can be used in different ways. For instance, I could, be, I could be saying that in a very specific context, um, there's something about the idea of wisdom that is applicable in defri- describing and distinguishing them from other people. For instance, they came up with a really good idea just now. And because they came up with a really good idea just now, and coming up with good ideas is characteristic of wise people, I will call this person wise. Right? But then there's another way in which I could be using the, the term, which is say like, this is a characteristic of this person that really distinguishes them from the rest of the population is that they really exhibit wisdom in how they live their life in every respect. Those are not the same, those don't mean the same thing when I say this is a wise person, right? I could say the same thing about strong, right? I could say, you know, your kid does something, you say, that was really, you're really strong, you're really brave, right? And I'm, I'm saying, okay, you exhibited a characteristic that fits this type of thing, right? Or this could be like really a characteristic which really describes you and differentiates you from the general population. Okay, so let's use the example from the beginning of Tanya. There's a word tzaddik. Tzaddik means a righteous person. If someone does more mitzvahs than sins, is it fair to call them a tzaddik? Yes. Yes, why? Because God judges people based on the preponderance of their deeds. And so such a person is judged righteously. They're judged favorably. So it makes sense to call them a righteous person, right? That make sense? 
Anyone have any objections to that? Does that really tell me though what kind of person they are? Right? In, in other words, is the difference between the person who does 51% good and 49% good a fundamental difference in who they are as people? No. So in terms of God's judgment, there's a very big difference. But if I really want to differentiate and say, there are, there's the general population of people, and then there's this certain type of person, a righteous person, a very different kind of person, right? Well, now I'm talking about something else entirely, right? I'm using the term righteous and kind of describe who they are as a person, right? As a characteristic of them. Does it make sense? Okay, so the first use is called a shem hamushal or a borrowed term. I take the idea of righteousness and I'm borrowing it for a very specific application. But I don't really mean to say that this person can be described truly accurately through the concept of righteousness because like, they do a lot of wrong things. I mean, they're clearly not a righteous person. That doesn't really truly describe them. They've sinned quite a bit. It just happens to be that their sins are less than their good deeds. Does that make sense? Let's use, a, let's use an example. Let's say um, I wanted to say that someone is um, religious. What would I mean if I were to say someone is religious? They keep kosher? Someone who keeps kosher keeps Shabbos. They're religious? Yes? No? Yeah. Not necessarily. Well... I want you to use the concept we just introduced to answer the question. Um, Someone keeps kosher, keeps Shabbos. Depends by what context they're speaking. Well. They're all religious in a certain way. Right. So they are engaging in behavior which, you know, in terms of normal sociology, has no explanation other than religion, right? Therefore, in explaining they're engaged, they're keeping kosher, and you know, we, have to, we have to describe them as religious, right? But we're borrowing religious as a, as, a, as a mode of human being to explain a very specific aspect of their behavior, right? Now, what would it mean if we were to say someone is like really a religious person? That would probably mean something about that the relationship with God and his, and his dictates and how they should live their life becomes the lens through which they live their life, right? That would be like a religious person in the more, like, it's not a borrow, we're not borrowing the term religious for a specific use. We're saying this really describes who this person is, right? And those are not the same thing, right? So it's not wrong to say a person who keeps Shabbos, keeps kosher, is religious. You just mean something different than when you say, like, saying, like, the Rebbe is a religious man, right? It's not the same thing. Good? Okay. So what, so what, so if we use any term, again, for our purposes, we're just going to make it simple and just talk about two. We want to know, are we saying that this is like really exempt? This thing can really be described by this concept. This concept really is the key to having an accurate perception of what this thing really is like. Or there's a specific thing about this thing and this concept is going to be helpful for framing it. And so I'm borrowing the concept. Okay? And this happens all the time in language. Right? We call this a leg of a table. Why do we call it the leg of the table? Because it does things that are similar to a human, leg. a human leg. Make sense? The eye of a storm. See how this works? Okay. So now, that means if we use a word, we're going to use this word, the word we're using here is nature, or in Hebrew, teva. 
we want to know, how are we using the word? Are we talking about teva as a shem hatayra? This is really, we're, we're saying nature really is the proper way of understanding what this thing is, what it's like. Or are we saying there's some aspect of this thing and the concept of nature is a good way of framing it to help us make sense of it. But, it's, but we're borrowing the term. Right? In other words, is, it, is this truly an example of nature or is nature a good um, way to frame it? A, 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 it's, 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 it has something about it that's like nature in some respect and so nature is a good way of describing it. Even though it's not a perfectly accurate way. And so what does he say here in his Hebrew? Is that it's a shame hamushal. It's a borrowed term. When we say that this is by the nature of the soul, we don't mean to say that the soul's desire for God is really natural. What we mean to say is that it is like nature in a certain respect. So that means we need to know what we mean by nature. Okay. So, what do we mean by nature? What is the actual meaning of the, the term teva or nature? Um, there was a rabbi um, in the men's program, and I do a whole class on this topic, nature, and I, I give a picture of the rabbi, but I don't tell people that it's a rabbi and ask them to guess. And very few people are able to guess that it's a rabbi. Um, his name was Rabbi David um, Nito, or Nieto, something like this. He was the chief rabbi of the Portuguese Jewish community in London, if I remember correctly, or the Spanish Portuguese Jewish community, Sephardic community in London. Um, there's a reason, you know, I, if you know anything about Jewish history, right, we tend to have a pretty negative view of the French and a pretty negative view of the, of the Spanish, and we have a negative view of a lot of European nations. For some reason, the British don't get that, that thing in our collective memory, and that's because they kicked us out in the 1200s and never let us back in, and so it wasn't this ongoing persecution. Um, but the Sephardim were able to get in before the Ashkenazi got back in, so there was like a strong Jew Sephardic Jewish community um, in, in London. Um, and... Um, so he lived in the, at the same time as, as, as the beginning of the Enlightenment, uh, 1600s. Um, so I know you see a picture of him. He kind of, he, he kind of looks like a contemporary of Isaac Newton and dresses like that. He's got a little bit of a beard, but with the whole wig thing and everything. Um, you know, like rabbis nowadays wear suits, right? So he dressed up. Anyway, so he got up and gave a speech one Shabbos. Um, and he said, "What the what the what the scientists right? This is the, you know this is the heyday of you know the scientific revolution is just beginning and right." He says, "What the scientists call God, or sorry, what the scientists call nature, we call God. God is nature, and nature is God." How do you think the community handled that? They got very upset. They labeled him an atheist, and they wanted to uh, excommunicate the rabbi. <laughs> And so the, the ends up getting sent to mainland Europe to some very famous rabbis to adjudicate whether that was heretical or not. Um, and what did they say? So, and this guy we get into issue is that it, it turns out that we mean different things by the concept. The, 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 we already have to disambiguate the concept of nature. So in, in, in the response from, the, there was a great rabbi named Chacham Tzvi. Um, so he wrote a response, response at 18. Don't be impressed that I know it, just I've taught it a lot, so I have to know it's response 18. Um, he, he differentiates between um, 
the nature of a thing and when we speak of nature as the cause. Explain to you what I mean. Fire is hot, correct? So it would be correct to say the nature of fire is to be hot. Would that be correct? Would that be a valid thing to say? Would it also be um, correct to say that nature has determined that fire is hot? No. Would that be correct? You could never like find that in like a scientific article, things like that, where nature is as- ascribed a kind of causal role. It could be. Yeah, it could be. It, it is. Doesn't, but it doesn't sound like scientific. Okay, why not? Because it kind of attributes something to power that is not really. Okay. Yeah. So, so this was his point. This was his point is that when you're doing scientific um, research, you're trying, you say, there's this phenomenon, right? Well, this phenomenon clearly is caused. So it's caused by some other phenomenon, right? But then you run into a problem that some phenomenon, right, they don't seem to be caused by other phenomena, they just are, but it doesn't make any logical sense that they just are, so there must be some kind of cause of these kind of basic phenomena, right? Um, I'll give you a, an, an example, okay? This one we're all familiar with, right? If I let something go, it's gonna fall? Why? Gravity. What's gravity? <laughs> That's right. It's a natural phenomenon, Gra- right? So, so, so I let something go. It's going to fall. Why is it going to fall? Gravity. What's gravity? Gravity is a natural phenomenon. So, what you're telling me is that there is a cause. Now, we could be a little more specific. We could say, if I let something go, it's going to fall. And you say why? Well, you say that there is a force generated between two masses that is um, equal to the. Um, product of those masses divided by the distance between them squared multiplied by some constant. And so that force will act on the object and the object will move and accelerate in accordance with that force and that's why I've I've explained it, right? And you say, okay, but but why is there a force being zooted on between two objects in proportion to their mass? And someone will just say, well, that's Nature. nature. So what are they doing? They are acknowledging the end of the explanatory train. Okay? So you have a train and you have a car and the car is moving. Why is the car moving? Because the car in front of it's pulling it. That makes sense, right? And then the car in front of that's moving because, and that car's moving because the car in front of it's moving. Go on and on and on and on. And how does the first car work? So you're way back in, you know, the times before trains were popular. You, how does a car move? Someone pulls it, a horse, a person, an ox, right? So it must be that in the first car, there's a bunch of horses or something else pulling the locomotive, right? But we know that that's not really how it works, right? So you explain, 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 and then you run to something where you just don't know how to explain it further, okay? So when a scientist speaks about certain things and they say, well, that's just, right, that's just the, the, the nature of things, right? Or nature of the term, what they're saying is that that's as far as back as we can go in our explanatory thing. Now, maybe, maybe, maybe you could go back further with more knowledge about the world. Maybe you couldn't, but that's beside the point. Right? So, uh, you know, if you're kind of uh, an intuitive scientist, you just say fire is naturally hot, right? If you're a more advanced scientist, you would say, well, fire is hot because the 
the the energy that was previously being used to hold molecules together is now no longer being used to hold those same molecules together as a result of the combustion breaking apart. So that energy, since it doesn't disappear, has to you know, manifest somehow, and it manifests in the change in temperature of the molecules around it. And then you ask, okay, well, that's very nice, but like, why doesn't the energy disappear? And you say, well, energy just doesn't disappear. It's the nature of energy. And you say, well, why is that the case? And someone says, that's just, you know, that, that you know, nature. And you see how they kind of shifted into using nature as kind of like, there's some reason and we don't know what it is, but that's why it is. Right? Mm-hmm. And in that use of nature, which is subtle, right? Where you're basically using nature for a stanza of, for this idea of, there is some reason why it is that the why reality is the way it is, but I don't know what that reason is. And so I just label that nature. You could also label that God, although there are profound sociological and philosophical differences by what you label it. Make sense? But that's different, right? Um, Than saying that it is the nature of fire to be hot. Because when you say it's the nature of fire to be hot, you actually mean something slightly different, although related, which is like this. If you have a fire, will it be hot? Okay. If you have water, will it be hot? It depends. So what we say is like this. Something that it depends on other things for it to have that characteristic or engage in that behavior, then we don't think of that as a natural aspect of it, but it's artificial or imposed. Does that make sense? So I would say this. It is natural for people to speak. It is not natural for people to read. What do I mean? If you do not educate people to read, what will happen? They will not read. They will not read. If you do not educate people to speak, they will speak. Assuming they were raised around humans. Well, I would argue, and this, this goes into an issue about nature, this is why Aristotle was opposed to experiments, which is that when you remove something from its natural environment, that itself creates an artificial. In other words, I would say if a, if a person was not raised around humans, then that's not a natural human being, right? This is an important part of the nature is that, and this is one of the, one of the reasons why, why natural thinking becomes very difficult when you become skeptical is because natural, like what, where do you draw the boundaries around the thing, right? Well, if every human being is born to parents in some kind of a community and society and human beings become functional through those interactions, then to separate out a person from the larger society would be unnatural to the person. So therefore, right, seeing a person who raised in the forest is unnatural. Seeing a person raised in a society is natural. But every society is, 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 is linguistically verbal. Not every society is literate. And you actually have to create a program and intentionally bring about literacy in people. You don't have to do that for verbal communication. So, so what you're talking about now is that things have certain characteristics by virtue of what they are. That doesn't mean they're always manifest, right? And you can have a... Right? And then there are some things which only have those characteristics. Now, you may say people have a natural capacity to be literate, but literacy itself is not natural, right? So you can become very nuanced. And, right? But you notice how now I'm using the word natural and nature in a very different way? I'm using it as a description of the thing rather than talking about it in a kind of causal way. They're related, but they're not the same thing. So what the Chachab Sfi makes the following distinction. He says like this. 
If you were to say that God is the hot, the heat of the fire and the flowing of the water and the beauty of the sunset, well, then you'd be a heretic because you're saying that God is the world. Yeah, that would be like Spinoza or something. But if you say, why is it that fire is hot and water flows and the sunset is beautiful? That's because of God. Well, then, then you're not a heretic. And so when the, when, when the scientists are saying, well, well, nature has made it such, what they call nature, we call. But you have to be very careful, right? When someone says, nature's amazing. I love studying nature, right? They don't mean it the same way now, right? But the thing is, and this is where you get into like naturalist and materialist thinking, they conflate the two. Because this idea is that there's nothing greater, there's nothing outside and beyond the universe. So kind of the universe is like self-determining or something crazy like that. So... So now, when we're talking about calling something nature, okay, um, the nature of something are those qualities that it has by virtue of what it is. But then when you go into Hasidus, it gets a little bit deeper. And what Hasidus says, and I'll, I'll say this briefly and we'll continue this on Monday, is that the word in Hebrew for nature, teva, is related to the word for coin, matbeah. Because the way a coin is produced is you take metal and you put it in a mold and the mold imposes a shape on it. And now the metal is in that shape. Did the metal ask to be in that particular shape? Is that shape now, and then you ask an interesting question, is that shape something external to the metal? And the answer is in one sense, yes, and in one sense, no. Right? The shape is the shape of the metal, right? It's not, an, it's, not, it's not like you painted the metal a color or something, right? That is the actual shape of the metal. But the fact that the metal is in that shape has nothing to do with the metal itself, it, right? So it is, it's, it is the metal on the one hand, and it's been imposed on it from, from the outside on the other hand. So now, let's just use the example of, of fire, fire being hot and oversimplified. Is the fire hot, or has that been superimposed onto the fire? It is hot. It is hot, right? What determined that fire is hot? Did the fire determine that it's hot? Is that self-generated from the fire? Or did the creator of fire imbue within it the characteristic of being hot? So the fire is kind of like a coin that has been minted to be hot. And water has been minted to be cool and flow. And the sunset has been minted to be beautiful, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, the nature of things are intrinsic characteristics that have been imbued into them by their creator. So on the one hand, they are their characteristics. On the other hand, those characteristics aren't theirs at all. And this is why we often think of something, and it's very important, that something which is natural cuts against autonomy. If I'm naturally curious about something, then that curiosity has nothing to do with my personal autonomy, does it? So we, when we talk about the nature of things, that means a very specific idea. But we're going to take some aspect of what we mean by nature and say that's helpful for understanding the soul's desire. But it's not going to be actually a natural thing because if it was actually a natural thing. Actual nature is like a very specific concept and that, that concept does not apply. So we have to understand in what sense is this desire natural? In what sense is it not natural? And why is that being brought up here? Right. 
So again, two things that we learned. One is that sometimes we're using a term we mean like that actual thing really describes this and sometimes we're just borrowing because it has a similar characteristic and that's what we're doing here. And the second thing is that in nature, there's these two uses we're going to disambiguate. One is, right, God, the idea that your explanatory power has run out and that kind of converges on at least one aspect of our concept of God. And then there's another thing which is the characteristics that something has that are not being superimposed onto it, right? And, the, the, and that from a from a standpoint of Judaism, that means that those characteristics were imprinted onto the thing by the creator, and so they're theirs without really them taking any kind of personal responsibility for them. Okay. We'll end it here. One, one actually last little thing. Um, The, the idea that that which is natural kind of cuts against autonomy, this is one of the main issues, um, just from a historical point, of why Judaism was historically very um, antagonistic to modern psychology. Can you think about why that would be? I, I'm emphasizing why they're historically. What does modern psychology try to do? What? No, the opposite. Modern, psycho- modern psychology was the idea that, well, can you study the nature of rocks? Can you study the nature of trees? Study the nature of anything, right? And things basically behave according to their... And nature cuts against autonomy, right? So if you think you can study the psyche the way you study other things and try to understand its natural tendencies and behaviors... What are you implying? Human beings don't really have any. What don't they have? Totally. Free choice. And that goes with the whole like free choice, moral responsibility, which is prerequisite for religion. Interesting follow-up to historical note. It turns out that human beings suffer tremendous, just as like an uh, empirical thing, suffer tremendous psychological anguish when they don't believe that they have autonomy. Did you know that? So um, it turns out like this. There was a period of time where like, psychologists thought that it was very important for people to understand that what's going on is all kind of natural drives and instincts playing out. And they're kind of almost like, that a lot of the mental suffering comes about because they're trying to control things that they can't really control. And it turns out that that does not actually make people it's not a philosophical argument that free will exists, but it turns out it doesn't make people any um, psychologically healthier and enhance their well-being. Um, it turns out that people need to have a very strong sense that they do have at least a significant degree of autonomy in how they live and experience their life. Which is part of the reason why the historical animosity to psychology has, is historical and not necessarily so so um, contemporary. Not saying that there's no differences in everything else, but like, like if you go back to like, you know, a lot of the early psychologists, there's a lot of like, that is absolutely like dangerous from a religious point of view. Because you're saying everything is, that's playing out in a person's life is just kind of natural drives playing out their course through the person. You're not giving any space for them to really make decisions about who they are and how they should live. 
Good? Okay. That was really important for the time. I just think it's important to know about life.